Hello and welcome to this edition of the Golf Channel Podcast with Rex and Lab. Before we get started, guys, I just want to let you know you can find all your favorite NBC Sports shows on Amazon Music. Just head over to Amazon.com slash NBC Sports. Cha-ching. Absolutely nailed the ad read. We are Feel coming bad. to you live from our flat. I got to that real smooth. In Hoylake, England, about a mile's walk from Royal Liverpool site of this week's 151st Open Championship. Thank you, Bridget, for putting us here instead of the Golf Channel Hotel downtown, which is about a 45-minute commute. Thank you, God. Uh, Two housekeeping items. Uh, First of all, this podcast is not really sponsored uh, by Fruit and Fiber, which you can see in the backdrop here, uh, which is my sustenance each and every morning. Uh, But since we can't get a sponsor... In the States, apparently, uh, this might as well be. And Rex, you've got two beers handy. Uh, you've promised to say to stay seated uh, with less fidgeting, uh, as the YouTube commenters are, are want to point out. Uh, I will. No, I, I'm going to stay focused on the green light and I'll stay seated. That's why I went and got two beers, just so I didn't have to get up. And the refrigerator is actually right behind you. So it, I would get so busted trying to sneak in, sneak <laughs> off camera, sneak back in. It just didn't work. I, I So much to cover. Open Championship, so much to get into with the golf course, the field, everything else. Before we get into it, though, I had I had a moment last week at the Scottish Open, and, and shout out to Connor. Like Connor, this was like the like the height of what I've ever felt the podcast could possibly be. Connor is a young man; he's from Ireland, but he works at Renaissance, which is where the Scottish Open was. Greatest whiskey myself. I've ever had. Yes, I want to punch myself in the face when I say it like that, but that's the way they want us to say it. I, I would not say it; I would say Renaissance. They sure. wanted to say renaissance, but Connor came up to me with a friend of his on Saturday at the Scottish Open. He'd had a couple pints, and he couldn't have been happy to meet me. Loves the podcast, was gushing about it, turned to his friend, who clearly did not listen to the podcast, did not care about the podcast, just wanted to get to the next pint and get to the golf. And the way Connor described the podcast, I was so taken by, I actually put it in my notes so I would say it. And I quote, you should listen to this. They slag on each other for 10 minutes, which means they make fun of each other. Let's be clear about that. And then they talk about barbecue for the last 10 minutes. And I'm like, yep, that's the construct. That's it. <laughs> and we can't it. sell it. Get, still, still cannot sell it. Do, I do feel like he nailed it. Uh, some people, uh, now that this is actually streaming live on YouTube, some people take offense uh, to what they perceive as a very acrimonious relationship uh, between the two of us. I don't feel it personally. Uh, your son uh, has certainly commented on how negative you are towards me. Uh, but I'm seeing a psychiatrist, uh, so it's really not uh, all that big of a deal. We do have so much to get into, Rex, uh, with this preview podcast. Uh, if you were uh, just now tuning into the year's fourth major, uh, we do do mini podcasts after each and every tournament round uh, beginning on Thursday. But this is this tends to be our beefier note. You were you covered the Scottish Open, Roy McIlroy's thrilling victory over Bob McIntyre. Uh, it seemed like we we had we had the shot of the year with Bobby Max three wood in the seventy second hole. I'm not sure it can it can be the shot of the year anymore if it doesn't actually win you the tournament, although it certainly did boost uh, Bobby Mack's chances of playing uh, on that European Ryder Cup team. But you spoke to Rory after that win at Renaissance. Uh, I, I, I would term that to be a very gritty victory, uh, back-to-back birdies uh, to win for the 24th time on the PGA Tour. What was your biggest takeaway from Scotland, and what do you think he can take away from that as he now heads to Hoylake, where he won in 2014? I feel like the three wood from the left rough, uh, the right rough at Renaissance uh, by Bobby Mack should have been the shot of the year until it wasn't. And then you can make the argument that Rory's two iron into the last hole, into the wind, the howling wind, just a low, Spiritual. beautiful, linksy shot. I mean, if, if you like, if you're kind of a golf nerd, like just set that on replay and just keep watching it and watching it and watching it because it is, that's Rory at his absolute best. And I think. And a couple things. One, I've, I've been asked this a couple times this week about the idea of who do you like because that's always the conversation you go to. And I want to say Rory for uh, a ton of different reasons that we're going to get into. I have such a hard time, though, wrapping my m- mind around that because winning back-to-back is hard. It takes a physical toll. It takes a mental toll. And when you win the week before major, now you're showing up on Monday and you're already tired. Now you're excited and you, you know you're playing good golf, but that doesn't help by the time you get to the following Sunday to sort of sustain that. I will say two things, however, two things. Phil did it back in 2013. One, the Scottish Tigers Open, done it. Came to Roy McIlroy in his last major championship victory at Valhalla won at Firestone the week before. And then Absolutely. turned around and won at Valhalla. It can be done. It is just. No, I didn't say, I didn't say it couldn't be done. 
It's just hard. Exceedingly unlikely. I mean, incredibly rare. I don't even know if I say stuff. unlikely. It's just hard. You're, you're, you're putting yourself up. Mathematically, it is unlikely. That being said, I would still argue that he's either one or one B in my mind as far as favorites go this week for a couple of different things. One, that two iron was a perfect example of what Rory does not like to do. He's talked about this numerous times in the past. He is not a fan of Lynx golf and playing in those types of conditions, but that was about as linksy as you could possibly get. Just a two iron sort of cut against the wind. It, it was just beautiful, just a work of art. The other half of it is, and it's funny, uh, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit. I stayed with Brad Faxon last week, who, of course, works with Rory about his putting. And I will say that Brad started to get a little nervous as the week went by about how much people were sort of bagging on Rory's putting. And I think the way he finished, the way Rory finished with birdie putts at 17 to tie Robert McIntyre, and then, of course, the, the birdie putt on 18 under really, really difficult conditions, I don't know that there's a better tune-up for coming into this major championship, this specific major championship. I know he's tired physically, mentally. I know all the things we just addressed, but man, it's hard to come up with another reason why he wouldn't be the favorite. Well, of course. I, I Honestly, I think he's he's the clear favorite. I know Scotty Scheffler has finished inside the top 12 uh, in an event in 19 consecutive tournaments day to last fall. It's been absolutely unbelievable. He's a tour leader in strokes gain. Like he's putting up numbers that we haven't seen since Tiger in 06 from a strokes gain ball striking perspective. But I mean, there's a reason why eight of the top 10 players in the world showed up, la- up last week at the Scottish Open. Renaissance may not be uh, the ideal uh, links warm-up, um, but it is at least links adjacent, even though it does have some Parkland features. So uh, Rory and the rest of the gang got, got acclimated to uh, the time zone, to that style of play. Uh, I think on the weekend, even though it was miserable and the weather conditions that we're expected to face here at Liverpool are not supposed to be as dire and as uh, dramatic as they were, certainly in that final round when you had gusts up to 35, uh, 40 miles an hour. Uh, It is a good tune-up to see flighted shots, uh, to have to kind of guesstimate exactly what you're going to do on your approach play and to to putt, quite frankly, on greens that are uh, exceptionally slower than what you typically face week in and week out on the PHA Tour. What were they running, nine and a half? Uh, in the final round, just because the windy conditions lower than that. Yeah, eight and a half on a Sunday. But they had to do that. Like, there was, there was a lot of back and forth on social media about this. I will say, had they not rolled them or not rolled them and not cut them overnight, we probably wouldn't have finished on Sunday, simply because the winds were gusting to 35, almost 40 by the time you finished. And anyone who's played Lynx golf knows that that's, um, that's pretty much impossible. Yeah, and like everyone was up in, up in arms thinking that the tour was – trying to protect these guys by, by sending them out in, in what was not expected to be uh, the worst of the conditions. Like, no, you can't have that tournament end on Monday. That's an absolute disaster scenario. You would have WDs left and right for guys wanting to make the five-hour trip down uh, to Hoy Lake and prepare for the year's final major. I did not understand that storyline whatsoever. Uh, but to, to, just to put a fine point on, on the putting, like the three most important aspects to me in Lynx Golf are avoiding pop bunkers, uh, being dialed in with your approach play and lag putting. The greens tend to be uh, very large in size. Uh, it tends to be windy, and you're, you, you don't want to have three to four footers uh, all day, even if they are on, on flat greens, especially when it's blowing 20 miles an hour and you're starting to have to play break because of the wind. Like, you just don't want to get in that scenario. And so those, to me, are the three aspects I thought Rory, uh, at least at Renaissance, uh, handled that. Well, I'm, I'm with you, Rex. I think, he's, I think he's the favorite, which leads me to my next point. What did you make of Roy McIlroy for the second consecutive major skipping his formal pre-tournament press conference, uh, just doing select media availabilities? He took a couple of questions from an RNA official, uh, has, done, has done some, some walk-in talks with Jamie Weir and Todd Lewis and the like, uh, but he did not have the formal sit-down for the second major in a row. You think fair, foul, do you understand it? Are you at least worried that this is going to become a trend? Yeah. One hundred percent. And I think you were more sideways about this than I was because I was at the Scottish Open last week and I was there on Wednesday. I wasn't sideways he... about it for the second consecutive major, even though we didn't have a press conference. I still got. Oh, you couldn't you couldn't tweet side. that fast enough. You, you couldn't get that tweeted out fast enough. I mean, you, you had a crawl and you sat and thought it's about bad, it for a little while. It's a bad look. It's a bad. It's look. not a good look. No. And, and I'm not going to be the defender here. Like, look, I can be in the bag for Rory McIlroy. It is concerning. And I'll go back to last week. He spoke with. Uh, golf channel myself i did an interview with him and then he also spoke with scott sports on wednesday but he didn't talk to the media and it wasn't until thursday 
that he did talk to the media. And then he kind of dropped the bomb when he was asked point blank if whatever is going to happen in golf, if live golf was the only option for you to play golf. And he pretty much cut the questioner off and said, I would retire, which is kind of funny. And it's also kind of insightful. And it's also kind of curious because you clearly had some thoughts on this. You clearly knew where you were going to go. You, you've been spending time thinking about this ever since this framework agreement was announced. Why would you hide from it? And I understand that he's been overwhelmed the last year. I understand that he is tired of being the spokesperson for either the PGA Tour or Live Golf or the framework agreement or anything else. I understand that he is wildly disappointed with how this all went down, like a lot of, like I would, I would argue, like the vast majority of players on both sides of this divide. But you took the mantle. You decided you wanted all the smoke. You wanted all the heat. And you performed. Like the things you were able to do winning last year in Canada, I think you and I both recognize that as one of the greatest accomplishments of his career for no other reason than he spent the whole final round thinking about, if I win this, I have one more than Greg Norman. That is an amazing level of hatred and dedication to a cause that I I didn't think that anybody had in, in them. And so if you wanted the smoke then, if you wanted the heat, if you wanted to be the spokesperson, don't go hiding from it now. And I'm not asking. Isn't, isn't he? Isn't he a human being? Isn't he able to change his mind? Isn't he able to change his his sure. stance? No, absolutely. And, and I'm. Well, I don't think he's changed his stance. And again, this goes back to what I just said. Like he clearly change has his, his change his 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 approach and how he deals with this. Maybe, maybe. But again, this goes back to Thursday. You, you don't want to talk about it on Wednesday. Like you make it very, very clear. It's only golf questions on Wednesday. But then on Thursday, when you don't sort of had that shield that the other reporters get a crack at you and they can ask whatever they want. And in that particular case, you clearly have something to say. Then don't go running from it. And I, I think there's also an element here that he won the last Open Championship here in 2014. And this is kind of a historic thing. And it's the way these things work is either you're the defending champ or you're a major champ or you're world number one, or you won the last open championship that was played at this venue. Those people come into the press center. I'm a little conflicted on this Rex. Uh, I would strongly encourage everyone to go check out our friend Joel Beal. I thought he did a good column uh, on Rory no longer talking. There's part of me who looks at this as, as certainly a, a bad look for Rory I think it sets a bad precedent how if if the game's biggest figure, now that Tiger uh, has, has kind of stepped away because of injuries, if the game's biggest figure is not talking to the press, uh, then then why does a Jordan or a JT or a Scotty or a Rom or Brooks uh, have to fulfill those media obligations as well? You, you think back to, to Tiger Woods uh, for, all the, for all the arrows that he uh, has had in his direction over his career. One thing you can absolutely say unequivocally is that he, was, he held himself accountable. He knew he was a star attraction at every single tournament he went to, and he faced the music. He faced the music pre-tournament. He faced the music after good rounds and bad, uh, when he was injured, when he didn't. I, I mean, there's been a dozen times in his 25-year career in which Tiger Woods dodged the media. And Roy McIlroy, I think one of the critiques of him is how if things don't go his way necessarily on the golf course, uh, he, tends, he tends to hide uh, and tends to dodge. Uh, the media that's that's one part of me kind of the looking at it journalistically and what it could potentially uh, be setting precedent wise uh as a as a human being i certainly understand why he would adopt this approach in dealing with it i don't even think this necessarily uh returning to hoy like you know it's it's the site of his last open championship in 2014 it's been nine years since he's clearly in good form i can i can understand the appeal of wanting to kind of protect your inner sanctum, right? Not not be bombarded with with either live questions or or uh, questions, kind of planting seeds of doubt as to why you haven't won a major championship. Uh, I I think it's I, I think he's just kind of he's shielding himself and and distancing himself from the ongoing drama with tour and live. You have non golf media folks who tend to turn up at these tournaments. John Rahm heard it today, four or five questions uh, about, the, about the lawsuit and the approach and the new landscape for what, what the tour is going to be. I think Roy McIlroy, even though he is on the board, is kind of distancing himself from that publicly. We saw that at the PGA Championship where he said it's been a conscious decision to kind of step away and not talk about this. We saw that at the U.S. Open, 
uh, where he and his representatives made it clear to the USGA media liaison that if anyone asked about the uh, the, the PIF tour deal, uh, that he was going to walk off the interview podium. And I think we're seeing it here when he cancels his press conference. He's just he's just kind of done being at the forefront. He, he at the forefront of this. He feels like he was misled. He feels like he was kept in the dark, and this is kind of his punishment. No, and I understand the human side of this. Of course I do. When you look at how difficult this must be for him and other tour players, like he's not out on an island on this one. I think most of the tour players feel the exact same way. I would counter, and again, I don't think anybody has been more of an apologist or, and I don't think that's the right way of saying it, more in the bag for Rory McIlroy than me over the course of the last, over the course of this podcast. However, I'm going to go to an exchange last week before between another reporter and Charlie Hoffman, who is also one of the five player directors on the PGA Tours Policy Board. And it, it didn't go well for that reporter. And from what I was told, Charlie was kind of condescending to this reporter. Like, oh, I bet you, you, you would love it if I talked to you about this. Well, yes, we would. And I don't expect you to give me state secrets. I don't expect you to sit here and, and tell me something that no one else knows because you don't know me. We don't have a relationship. That's not what I'm expecting at all. You have put yourself in a position consciously. You decided that you wanted to be on the policy board at this specific point in time. And there is all manner of things going on in the world that your opinion matters. And you cannot run and hide from that simply because you're not comfortable with the subject matter. Again, don't give me state secrets. I don't want you to sit here and explain to me exactly what's going through your mind. But you do have a responsibility to not just the other PGA Tour members, but now to the public. Because this is a very public issue, what's going on. And I don't want to hear any more about, no, I'm not going to talk about that. You don't have that option. You cannot give away secrets. You can decide not to talk about what goes on behind closed doors. But you have an opinion on this, and your opinion needs to be stated. Didn't Rory already kind of accomplish that? No, not on this front. No. he He literally talked a day after the announcement came out. No, he hadn't talked since the the hearing, the Senate hearing. Like, I think he had a responsibility to respond to that. And there's going to be things that crop up probably every single week that someone in this particular position, and I'm talking about all the player directors, just not Rory or Charlie Hoffman or Peter Malnati or Patrick Cantlay, any of them still have a responsibility, not just to the other members, to the public, because this has become a very public issue. And, I mean, there's a reason. Why there's an antitrust lawsuit out there right now beyond the one that was between live golf and the PGA tour, because there is an element of the public that feels like what's going on in golf right now isn't good for the fan. And I think there's something to be said for that. And as a journalist, I'm not going to back off from that. I know they're uncomfortable. I know they don't want to talk about it in Rory's case, to be fair, he has probably said more than he, he ever wants to say about this, but he chose to be on the policy board right now at this moment in time. No, I certainly understand that. Like that's a, that's a appointed position. Like they were, they were put in that position by their peers uh, who, who entrusted them. Uh, and I think they do have a responsibility uh, to, to speak. And I do think this story though, Rex has, has made clear that the players don't have as much say in this, or they're not as important in this ongoing deal as maybe they were led to believe. If there were five or six people who were actually hammering out this deal in secrecy and even players as important as Tiger Woods and Roy McIlroy kept in the dark about this, I think that was kind of a harsh realization that this might be a a a, a member-run organization, or 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 the, the PGA Tour may work for the players, but at the top level, no, this is getting hammered out uh, by by very uh, savvy business people who are overseeing a, a billion-dollar enterprise, and that PGA Tour players probably don't have the the business acumen uh, to be handling that. Uh, no, I don't agree with that. The framework agreement was hammered out. In private, And I think what we saw last week in the documents that were turned over to the Senate for the hearing, that probably makes, I would argue, the vast majority of PGA Tour players wildly uncomfortable because you had two people, granted board members, but two people that aren't PGA Tour employees that don't have to answer to the players at all who essentially did horse training and hammered out this deal. Now, the argument has been, and I do agree that there is something to this that this had to be done the framework agreement had to be done in secret because there oh, for was sure. litigation yes litigation involved and if this got out publicly that things could have gotten sideways very very quickly i agree with that going forward though the second the framework agreement became public on that uh, tuesday morning then the policy board and the players do get involved i completely disagree with you that going forward the players have to have a say in this because everyone either has so to you buy want in. Peter Melnati and Charlie Hoffman 
having as much, if not more, say than an Ed Hurley and a Jimmy Dunn. As much. As much. They're both all they're all on the policy board. In With theory, there's 40 there's, years of business experience in, that's in, the acqu- way it works, in, man. in acquisitions. You can like, sit here have, and say I that. I have no problem. I have no problem with the five players dictating the terms of a of a competitive landscape and and how you would potentially reintegrate the lived effectors, make them uh, how how you could potentially make whole uh, the players who who remain loyal. We'll certainly get to that in John Rom's comments uh, here here in a bit. But I don't I don't want them anywhere near the business dealings. They're not they're not equipped for that. They're, they're professional golfers. Let business people handle the business side. But they have to be. Because, again, we're talking about the future of professional golf. So if Patrick Cantlay or Charlie Hoffman or Roy McIlroy choose right now to stick their head in the sand and I'm going to vote whatever way that Jay Monahan tells me, then shame on them. Then You could be informed. I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying You have blindly, to have an opinion on it. Finally sign your name this on is, it. This is not – and I'll go back to – I'm trying to – I can pick any number of issues. Let's go back to when the PGA Tour – decided to implement a drug testing program. And it was only because of the Olympics. This was the only reason why. The commissioner at the time, Tim Pincham, had argued for eons that performance-enhancing drugs aren't an issue on the PGA Tour, so we don't need to test. Well, suddenly that, that all changed when they decided to go into the Olympics. And because of that, they had to implement a policy. And I remember covering that. And I had a really, really good source on the pack who was feeding me a lot of information about this. Those players didn't know anything about drug testing, but they had to have an opinion on it. That's why because it's elected. related to the competition. That's, this that's, is going to be related to the competition. What whatever whatever becomes of Nuco, whatever becomes of PGA Tour Inter- Enterprises, whatever it is we want to call it, that that's going to affect the competition. Because somehow, some way, there's going to be if we come up with a definitive agreement, there's going to be team golf, and there's going to be more events you have to play or less events you have to play, and obligations that you have now that you didn't have before. All of these things, either I'm one saying way that's or the other. Fine. I just don't want them going through the inner workings of a, of a four. They don't have a choice. The way, the way this board works is there's 10 votes. Well, there's, there's only nine votes now because Randall Stevenson stepped down because he's uncomfortable with this deal. He was a businessman who ran AT&T who's uncomfortable with this deal. If that doesn't set off alarm bells, then I don't know what will. I don't. I don't disagree with that. I, I think. I think we're getting caught up on the on the same thing. I don't want Charlie Hoffman or Peter Malnati going through the inner workings of they a have to. commercial entity. They can be informed, Rex, but you need to let the business people do the do the business. It's it's Jimmy Jimmy Dunn is not sitting there like, hey boys, here's how here's how I think you should bring Brooks Kepka back on the PG tour. Here's what I think the penalty is. No, there's going to be a disciplinary board of consisting of players who are going to work together. Any, any, any matter related to the competition should be handled by the players and any, um, any, any, any issue or any determination should be hammered out between PIF executives and tour policy board members who were appointed that position because of their business acumen. Tour policy board members include five player directors. So do you want to try again? Player, player directors. Not independent. Ten, again, there's 10 people on the policy board. You can't separate the two. You're right. There's four right now. It should be five that are quote-unquote business people, and then there's five players. But you can't separate the two. It's all one body, whatever the background is. And I, I see where you're going with this. I understand. Do you want Charlie Hoffman deciding if we should use Concur or some other program for our HR? <laughs> I get, like You don't want that. No disrespect to Concur. Concur, you've come, come along. Concur, we love you. You've made, you've made yeah. some significant please, improvements over the past few years. Let's be clear. You do not survive that. Uh, but I, I understand what you're saying, but there's 10 votes for a reason. There's, the policy board was created, was formed for this specific reason. They have to be involved with the nuts and bolts of this. I don't expect them to understand exactly what the annuity shares should be for PIF versus the PGA Tour versus the player directions. You could be informed, if not instrumental. You're going to have to vote on it, though. But yes. you're going to have to be you're going to have to decide. Again, we're getting caught this up goes, on the same thing. Well, this goes to the idea though. You're you are you're, you're pushing back on the idea that don't go run and hide from it. That's how we started with this. And I understand that Rory is tired of talking about this, but you chose to be on the board right now. And right now, more than any other time in the history of the PGA tour, you have to be outspoken. One way or the other. I don't care which way you lean. Like, do you do you, man. Fill your boots, as they say here. But you have to be outspoken. 
So what's your what's your expectation for him? Every every tournament should he be giving an update on how the status of the negotiations are? Should this be should this be dealt with publicly before the December thirty first deadline, or should these negotiations, as it was kind of apparent to me during the Senate hearing, like, hey man, let's let's let them work this out in private before we start airing all the dirty laundry uh, and kind of making these negotiations public? To your point, my guess is, and this is the way things normally work on the policy board, is there's people at the PGA Tour who come up with these concepts, whatever it may. Let's say it's drug testing, and they present that before the policy board, and then that's debated back and forth. We like this. We don't like that. Put that in. Whatever the case may be, whether it applies to competition or business or what, what have you, this is going to be the same thing. It's going to follow the same route. Whatever the definitive agreement is going to look like will eventually be plopped down in front of the nine board members, hopefully maybe 10 by then if they uh, appoint a replacement, and then they will sit and do their own horse. Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin, who's at the Senate hearing. You think he wants wants that open vacancy? Uh, I'm sure he does. Actually, he was was very much in the bag for the tour. Yes, I think think the tour would probably consider it because he was very much on their side, which is weird because he's the one that called the hearing, but yeah. Uh, Rex, what did you make of John Rahm's John comments on Tuesday? Two things stood out to me uh, and what I thought was a very thoughtful, articulate interview. First, he said Jay Monahan, who, of course, returned to work on Monday as, as commissioner after a month-long absence for an undisclosed health issue. He said that he has done a, quote, fantastic job uh, at the helm of the tour and that he deserves the benefit of the doubt. He still believes that Monahan and other tour executives have the player's best interests in heart. That's one Secondly, he said that unlike what Roy McIlroy said, unlike what Cheston Hadley apparently has said, he does not necessarily see a need for the tour loyalists, those who remain loyal to the tour and did not defect for live, to be compensated or made whole for uh, their loyalty. He didn't necessarily see the need to, to bring out the receipts. The live offered you this, or well, we need to get some sort of, of, of uh, bonus uh, for remaining loyal to the PGA Tour while I was facing an existential threat. So let's take those one at a time. Which Were you surprised that Rom took that stance in regards to Monaghan? Because uh, clearly, from what we've heard publicly from Jordan Spieth, Xander Schauffele, among others, including last week at the Scottish Open, uh, that seems to be unpopular in the locker room. Uh, I'm going to start with the second one first, if you don't mind, because that's nope. the easiest of the two. I will go to the idea, and I loved his line today, and I loved the fact it was clear he thought about this again. He thought about it. He had an answer. He had a stance. That's all I'm asking for. Not inside information. He thought about it, and the idea was it was his choice to stay at the PGA Tour. So, no, I don't need to be compensated. Would I take the money? Absolutely. He's not going to be silly about this, but he's not going to be the one shaking his fist demanding to be compensated. That being said, I think I've said this all along since the beginning of this conversation, even before the framework agreement was announced. If something does happen, of all the moving parts of making the framework agreement definitive, this, in my mind, is the easiest. Because how do you how do you pay those guys off? How do you make them whole? Money. And we're dealing with an entity that's playing with monopoly money. So whatever number Rory needs to be quiet and to be okay with this deal, just sign it and give him the check and let's move on. I think that's the easiest part of all of this equation. Everything else is very, very complicated. I mean, as I far think- as... I think the, I think the question is how though, right? Like we just we just mentioned we just mentioned concur. Like we're not going to have players turn their receipts to the tour accounting department and suddenly be be repaid for what they could have gotten from live. And let's let's also be clear, Rex. Like the PJ Tour increased their bonus pools both for the PIP as well as a designated event model. These guys have been making more money since the live threat emerged. Now, did John Rom? I saw numbers floated like three hundred to four hundred million dollars that he was offered by the PIF. Has he has he has he has he made a that difference over the past year and a half of the PJ Tour? No, of course not. But as he was first to mention, he's also uh, he's also had an incredibly lucrative career on the platform that the PJ Tour built, and he is grateful for that. I'm not sure uh, if the other superstars in the in the game share that opinion. Roy McIlroy, of course, at the uh, Canadian Open, uh, said that, that yes. Players should be compensated for the loyalty. The question is complex in trying to figure out how. Well, again, this is the easiest part of the equation because the people that were going to give him the money, the public investment fund, is now, in theory, in business with the PGA Tour. So the PIF knows exactly how much they were going to pay Rom, and if that's the check that it takes, that's the check that it takes. Again, this is the easiest part of the equation. The other half of this was the Jay Monahan part, and you and I talked about this on Live Phone because I found it fascinating 
And you pointed out last week that Xander Schauffele, Scotty Scheffler, uh, uh, even Jordan Spieth to a certain degree, they all talked about Jay Monahan, and they did it in the context of we, we hope he gets better. Like, I mean, there, there was all the things you have to say when someone is dealing with some sort of health issues, but there's clearly trust issues. And that, in my mind, has become code for we don't like what you did, and we're not quite sure if you're our guy going forward. And I think you're starting to see very, very clear lines on both sides of this. Clearly, Rory is still for Jay Monahan, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Clearly, John Rahm, I mean, Jay Monahan had a good day today, whether if he realized it or not, that John Rahm spoke so glowing of him, glowingly of him in public. Because I can tell you, you can start seeing all the way down through from the star players all the way down where players are standing on both sides of this. And I think we've addressed this before about does Jay Monahan keep this job? Like whatever happens as it framework becomes definitive, is Jay Monahan going to be the person? And I think that's going to be a burning question. That's going to take a little while to get, discuss- to get discussed and hashed out. Yeah, Jay Monahan had a better day on Tuesday than Greg Norman, who when asked uh, when Brooks Kepka was asked what he thought of Greg Norman's performance uh, as live golf CEO and commissioner, he said he has done quote fine, uh, not a, a ringing endorsement. That was not. Uh, speaking of Brooks Kepka, he of course is one of the favorites this week at the 150 151st Open at Royal Liverpool. You've walked around the golf course. You've covered, I believe, two opens here: Tiger in 06 and Rory uh, in 2014, where I was there as well. What are players telling you about the golf course? And give me a little dirt on 17. Are we going to expect carnage? Are players going to complain? Is it going to decide this golf tournament? I will. Uh, I, I tweeted this out earlier today. So I had a member who kind of showed me through the clubhouse today. And it's really, really cool. They love their history in the clubhouses over here, by the way. Man, they, they are big about the history in their clubhouse. I think every club is like that, isn't there? Aren't they over here? Uh, yes, yes. Like, like when I walk through a club Pride, golf. Prideful members. You got to love it. Yeah, I do. But when I walk through Long uh, Wakaiba Golf Club in Longwood, no one's showing me old paintings or who won the member no, guest. The, the yards when I play 13 holes no. of bad golf with a case of beer. Uh, no, they're, they're just trying to hawk some some $25 flat bill, flat bill caps instead. Uh, I'm fine with that. I will say, though, there was a there's a display downstairs at the clubhouse here, at Liverpool, and it has Tiger Woods' two iron from 2006 when he won, and it has Roy McIlroy's wedge from 2014 when he won. And I thought that is the best metaphor of those two opens that I could possibly imagine because the two iron was the key for Tiger that week. He only hit one driver. We've talked about this. He only hit one fairway bunker. Just a dominant clinical. I mean, just I would call it wicked performance because he, he went out with a game plan and he never wavered from it. And in my mind, it's one of like the best performance of his career, not because he was so dominant. It's because in his mind, I'm going to hit a two iron and then I'm probably going to hit the two iron again. And I'm going to do that better than you could possibly hit any other club in your bag and then go forward to Rory in 2014. And it was probably what we're going to get this week. It was, it was green, there was rain, uh, there was wind, it was challenging. I'm not trying to say that, but it was a much different golf course, and he has a wedge in there. And I think that's probably more what we're going to see this week. Yeah, I think we're going to see somewhere 15 to 18 under par. It is green. It has been wet at least over the first two days of, of tournament week. It's not, it's not the longest links course by any stretch of the imagination. And, and to your point about Tiger hitting two iron and kind of relying on his mid iron game, which was, which was leaps and bounds ahead of everyone else uh, in the world. You're not going to see players just wail driver with, with reckless abandon here. They, they really don't need to. It's not that penal off the tee. It's not that penal off the fairway uh, as well with the exception, of course, the third hole uh, and the 18th hole with the internal OB and we'll get to that. I'm, I'm fascinated to see Rex, what, what happens with, with 17. If you haven't been following along, this is a brand new hole it can range anywhere from like 130 yards to 150 yards. The players are hitting. Uh, I've heard anywhere from like a, a gap wedge all the way down to six iron. Uh, the wind is, is going to be blowing in on guys. And if you have not seen this green, it's like a, it's like a turtle shell green. I would describe it with, with severe runoffs in, in every direction. Like you're going onto the beach. If you go long, uh, left is a is a really nasty area where you'd have to to kind of nip a a, a pitch shot there a, a cavernous bunker right of the green I was out there like you can barely see the top of the flag stick and then two very very deep bunkers short of the greens as well uh, players are 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 going to hate it by and large 
and, I, and I love that. I love the idea of the best players in the world being uncomfortable as they stand over a shot when you don't have more than a, than a short iron in your hand. It's a consequential part of the round, obviously, uh, being the penultimate hole of the round and, and the tournament. And I think you could see anywhere from a, a, a two to a six there. I think it could add up, add up pretty quick uh, with, with the right uh, treacherous conditions. No, I'm with you. I don't think players are going to like it. I, I do think it's going to play a pivotal part of the round for no other reason than it's 17. This goes to Sawgrass. We talk about this every year. If that 17th hole at Sawgrass was the second hole, we wouldn't focus on it. You ain't doing split tees of the open, by the way. And you ain't doing split tees, at least not this year. I will say this, though. I think they don't do new at Open Championships all that often. When you consider that the first Open was played here at Liverpool in 97, that's 1897. Not 1997. <laughs> you, you get an idea that this is kind of out of or out, so out of character for a club like this. I, I'm, I am going to be curious because my guess is players have been, let's call it aloof. It's probably the nicest way of saying it when they've been asked about this whole. I think Matt Fitzpatrick was kind of like he was very sort of dismissive of it. He didn't want to get into details. As we get further and further into the weekend towards Sunday and you start seeing sort of these bad bounces and guys ending up on the beach. My guess is we'll start hearing more and more about it. And knowing the way they do things over here, we'll probably have a new 17th hole when we come back, whenever it is. The Open comes back here. I, I do want to pull the curtain back real quick, though, and, and ask this question. It, it's apropos of nothing of the 17th hole. But you mentioned rain, and we had we had a bit of an issue, you and I. We, mm. we had it hit on the mm. early live from show today. It was on the range, and the range is about an eight-mile walk from the media center <laughs> till we get there. And, and it started raining in the middle of, of our hit, and we didn't have our rain jacket. So let's be clear about that. And we were kind of asked indirectly by the folks, the technical folks around us. Ah, no brawlies, no please. No brawlies, no umbrellas is what they kind of told us. And so we did it. And, and I think we got some kudos from the folks back in Connecticut about how, hey, thank you guys for kind of toughing that one out. If you guys Kudos don't to, mean anything to my wet socks, Rex. Uh, they do not. We were dripping. Uh, you look more like a wet rat than yeah. I, I think I did. Your hair doesn't hold up well when it gets wet, by the way. I'm going to say this, though. I had a chance. Todd Lewis kind of chimed in, and I'd love you guys are really, really good at giving us feedback, especially negative feedback. So please feel free on Great this one. Great at it. Let, let us know. Todd Lewis thought it was ridiculous. He thought we look uh, like fools standing in the rain in suit jackets and ties. And I don't disagree with him. However, they kind of tell us what they need us to do, and more times than not, then we follow their lead because they pay us. That's the way jobs work. I will tell you this, that earlier tonight, I was on the live from set because uh, a friend of mine wanted to see the live from set, and Mike Tirico, the legend that is Mike Tirico, was on the set. And he and I were talking, and I asked him, point blank, because he actually saw the hit. And I go, I got to ask you, like, you know more about TV than I will ever know. Please. Should we have been wearing suits or should we have? And before I finished, he goes, put a rain jacket on, man. He goes, it, it, just, it looks dumb. Just put a rain jacket on. You're on the range. He goes, even if it's not raining, if you think it might rain, just put a rain jacket on. So I'm just throwing it out there. Mike Tirico did not wear a suit, by the way, uh, when he was in the studio. Uh, he for did not. Segment on live from, couldn't help but notice that no one told Mike Tirico uh, to put on a suit. Uh, I, I, have to, I have to. You and I have ties on for this podcast, of by course. the way. That's, yes. Of course. This is, this is prim and proper. Uh, our, our lovely host, uh, Anna Jackson, who I absolutely love to death, she mentioned leading into our segment that it was, quote, misting out there. Uh, that take did not, did not hold up well. Uh, we, had, we had Gunner, our cameraman, wiping the camera three times uh, just so, so you, you fine viewers uh, could, could, could make us out during what was a, a five-minute segment. I uh, got absolutely soaked. You're right. What little hair I have left uh, did not hold up well uh, to, what, to what certainly felt like a monsoon even if it wasn't. Uh, I'm with you. I don't feel as strongly, apparently, as Mike Tirico does on this. I'm more against wearing the full suit when you're at home. When you're sitting in your home office, you got Tito barking, bunk mates doing God knows what, searching for $100 extra expensive uh, Blackstones. Um, who, who knows what kid's going to stumble in and steal your golf clubs, and yet you're sitting in there. We, we know. We all know you do not have pants on, and yet you're sitting there with a jacket, uh, an ugly tie, uh, and a dress shirt to do a hit on like a, a second and a half delay from your home studio. It looks, it looks terrible. Let's be honest. It looks terrible. We need to normalize. We need to normalize casual behavior. No one wears dress shoes anymore. They all got like kind of street casual shoes when you're on air and you show that. We need to normalize at-home 
attire as well when you're on TV. Just saying. Uh, you conflated my issue. I, I don't think my issue wearing a, a suit at home is, is not the issue. If I do the early show, if I do golf today from my home studio, fun I show. will wear I, the fun show. I will wear Volpe. Shout out to you, Chloe. Shout out to you. I will wear golf related attire. So golf shirt, pullover, hoodie, whatever the case may be. On the late show, they want me to wear a suit. And no, I am not wearing pants. I'm, I'm always wearing shorts, and I, I don't have any shoes or socks on. And, yes, Tito's usually sitting in my lap. That's all true. However, this is what they want me to wear. I don't have a problem with that. I will say I had to do a hit right before I came on this trip. Well, went to the Scottish Open. And we've got some issues with our air conditioning. And, again, pulling back the, the curtain here a little bit, it's not a camera that you and I have in our home studios. It's just an iPhone. And it has an app on there called Live View. And you just fire up the iPhone and you push it and it, it works. Whatever. In 30 seconds, you're broadcasting live television. It's kind of crazy to think that. It's really easy. You, just come. Yes, you can just kind of turn the light on. It's, it's one of those ring lights and it, it, it kind of goes. When an iPhone gets too hot, though, it won't turn on. And about two minutes before I was about to go on, and it's a live show, the iPhone shut off. And I had to literally grab it, take it, running into, run into the living room and hold it in front of the AC unit for a minute to cool it down enough to make it turn on again and then i had to do my 90 second hit and i'm literally sweat is dripping off my nose wearing a suit which would piss you off but wearing a suit and but i'm terrified that my phone's about to to go out again because it's too hot too hot too cold too wet Uh, i was a little bit freaked out uh uh, listeners of the podcast know that i just recovered from pneumonia went through my entire moxiclav uh uh a treatment plan for my doctor. I cannot get back on there for six months. You will become immune to amoxicillin, and then you got a big problem. And so if I get pneumonia because I got wet on what was supposed to be a misting day, uh, according to Anna Jackson, not going to lie, Rex, I'm not going to be very happy. All right, it we're going to finish this podcast in a very fun way. This is, this is what we're going to do, Rex. We're going to do rapid fire, top 12 players in the world real quick. Tell me why they can win the open and why they can't real quick sky shuffler why kenny and kenny not win the win the open real quick uh he's gonna be my pick he was gonna be my pick if we did picks i think if he has an average putting week we can go back to what he did at the masters what he did at the pga championship he's hitting the ball well last week being the exception better than anyone in the game right now if he just puts average if you just don't give strokes away he's gonna win yeah, that was like an off week ball striking wise for Sky Shuffler, and he was still top five in the field. Uh, he is uh, cruising at that comfortable of a level. I'll do Roy McIlroy, who is the world number two. Why he can? Because he's playing uh, exceedingly well. Uh, he's handling the major championships uh, as well as he ever has in his career. Why he can't? The normandy of the moment did not meet it last year. The 150th Open at St Andrews uh, with the final on seven, he got lapped by Cam Smith. Uh, if he gets in that position, I think there's still some doubt whether he could do it for the first time. In nine years. World number three, John Rom. Why or why not? Make the case. Uh, so, oh, so I got to do both. Why and why not? Uh, why? Mm-hmm. Because he's John Rom, And I simply think that when he is playing well, I mean, we've seen it before. We saw it at the Masters this year. He has more wins on tour than anyone else. He is still one of the most talented players in the game. That's why he can win. Why he can't win? He can get sideways with himself on the golf course, and that's really, really easy to do on Lynx Golf. He had a really good line today, but I'm not going to get into it because you want to keep moving. It was, it was a good line. Needless to say, uh, his, his attitude on the golf course is still a little bit of a work in progress. World number four, Patrick Cantlay, why he can or cannot, why he, why he can. Well, he's finished in the top 15 uh, in the last five major championships. No other player can say that. Why he can't, well, he has not been within five shots of the lead heading into the final round of a major. He's not realistically given himself a great shot. He also missed the cut last week at the Scottish Open. Uh, Victor Hovland, why can he, why can't he? Why can't he? Because uh, when you look at what he's been able to do this season, I think he sort of emerged as a player that uh, certainly myself personally had a lot of question marks when it came to Victor Hovland. But I think now he sort of established himself. You and I were talking Roddick up just a few days ago, and I think Victor is going to be a huge part of that team if Europe can pull it out. Why he cannot? You told a great story today about his chipping. He's going to end up in a really, really difficult spot, and I'm not quite sure if he can chip off that tight lie, hit that shot that you talked about under pressure. Last year, he was like avoiding at all costs using any sort of wedge around the greens. A year later, he was hitting off a downslope over a pop bunker in the chipping area by the media center, nipping them perfectly with a lot of spin, hitting them close. He turned around to me and said, remember when I couldn't do that? Yes. Yes, yes. Victor, I do. Six months like ago. Six months ago, before you started working with the track man, 
Maestro. I'll go next. Xander Schauffele, world number six, why he can and why he can't. He has had some open success before. Remember, he was the 54-hole co-leader uh, a couple years ago at Carnoustie. Why he can't? Well, probably because I would pick him to win uh, a, a major championship, and we all know that didn't work out uh, as as did my prediction that Victor, that excuse me, that Xander Schauffele was going to be the PGA Tour Player of the Year in 2023. Yet he sits here without a victory. Cameron Smith, the reigning Open champion at St. Andrews, returning fresh off a victory at Live. Why can't he? Why can he? Why can't he is easy. He won here last year. I, I've made this argument all along that just because Live players now play 54 holes in shorts with loud music and shotgun starts, they're still really, really good players. We've learned that. Brooks Kepka won the PGA. Every major this year has had a Live player inside the top five. That's why he can. Why he can't? I sat in on his press conference earlier this week, and he clearly is not happy with his driving. If that gets sideways, he could be in trouble quick. I'll go next. Max Homo, world number eight. I guarantee. If you went back into a podcast at the beginning of the year, the preview 2023, I said that this was like a put up or shut up year for Max Homa in the major championships. He's played well in regular PJ Tour events. And Rex, here are his results in the major championships this year T43 at the Masters, T55 at the PGA, missed cut at the US Open. Yes, he's coming off a T12 last week at the Scottish Open. I still need to see it. That's why, uh, for me, Max Homa. Is a cannot. Why can? So you're not going to do a know, can just, for Max I mean, Homa. You're just going to go straight. Why can to he? Why can he? Because he's a top ten player in the world. He hasn't played well o- over the past couple of months. He did finish T12 in the Scottish Open. If you think uh, form is any indication, this should be a fun one. Uh, Matt Fitzpatrick, <laughs> world number one, world number world number nine. Why can he? Why can't he? Go back to last year's U.S. Open. Seems like he can't. He did. Newsflash: He can't. Matt Fitzpatrick said a top 30 finish this week is kind of the goal for him. He's playing so poorly. His open record is trash. He said T30, if he's looking realistically, is what he's looking at. That was a trick question. He can't. Actually, do you want to do a actually side bet? Who's going to be the low Fitzpatrick, he or Alex? You're going to take Alex? Nope. Nope. I'm still, I'm still taking Matt. Uh, but, to actually, but to actually listen to Matt Fitzpatrick, he said uh, it may be a little bit close. I skipped that one. Right. Uh, so that. I, did, I didn't mean to jump over you. Wyndham Clark, world number 10. Can he back up his U.S. Open triumph? Absolutely, he can. I mean, if you look at where he's won this year, if you look at Wells Fargo, that's a very, very difficult golf course against a really, really deep field. The U.S. Open, really, really difficult golf course against an elite field. This is no different. Why he can't, he doesn't have a lot of experience on Lynx golf. I'm not saying that's the end-all, be-all, but you do need to learn how to play this style of golf. A couple quick ones. Jordan Spieth is world number 11. Uh, would love to see him do it. His Open record has been fantastic. No player is further under par over the last five editions of the Open than Spieth is. And Brooks Kepka. if you took out last year's edition when he was injured and dealing with uh, a lot of swing issues that he eventually got sorted out with Claude Harmon III, he did have back-to-back top six finishes. I do think Brother Books, Mr. Chill, King Kepka, will once again be a factor in this major championship. Your pick to win is and why? Just address that, it's Scotty Scheffler. And look, that's, that's tough. I think I would put, like we talked about earlier in the podcast, I would put Rory 1B and, and Scotty 1A. And it really just depends on which one of those two players is going to have an average putting week. I don't expect a great putting week from then. I think statistically we've, we've taken such a deep dive on what separates good putters from average putters. In this particular case, and again, staying with Brad Faxon last week was an eye-opening experience when you look at putting at that level because it's all relative. Right. Like we can sit here and say that, oh, Scotty Scheffler had a terrible putting week last week. Well, compared to you and I, no, he did not. He had a great putting week. But compared to the rest of the field, he lost strokes. If he can somehow maintain just zero. And that's that's I mean, I I think it's called the unicorn on tour between swing coaches, because if you can just maintain you're not losing strokes, you're not gaining strokes, but you're going to out ball strike everyone else. I love his chances. Uh, This may be the first time. Golf Channel podcast with Rex and Left history that you and I agree on a winner of a major championship. It seems wrong that Scotty Scheffler is putting up these historic numbers, ball striking wise, and yet he has only, quote unquote, only two victories to show for. One of them, of course, was the Players' Championship. I do think he'll nab a major, and thus I do think still world number one by a long shot. I mean, that's the amazing part here. Rory, Rory, Rory can Rory can track him down this week. But when you when you look at he's uh, I think it's two average uh, ranking points that he's ahead of Rory right now. That's Tiger esque. I mean Tiger now he got to four and five average world ranking points, but that's a substantial lead. Normally you don't have that big of a lead. 
he's hitting the ball so well. And as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, like Lynx Golf is all about who can hit the ball on the screws. Because when the wind blows, uh, if you did not hit that tee shot or iron shot perfectly, as, as you and I can both attest, it can start going sideways really, oh, no. really quick. And, and Scotty Scheffler, no one is doing it better at his level uh, than he is at this current moment. I think Scotty Scheffler hoists the Claret Jug on Sunday night. What are your final thoughts, Rex? As we look forward to Thursday, what are you looking forward to hearing from the RNA, or do you just want to end this podcast? No, I, I always look forward to that one because uh, unlike the USGA press conference or certainly Augusta National, probably a better comp on that front, they're so much more lively and the questions are, are so much more pointed for whatever reason. Like I think over here you get a lot of uh, kind of looking ahead. For example, like when's Muirfield going to host the open championship again. It's out of the rotation. Turnberry always seems to come back into the rotation. Turnberry seems to come back into the conversation real quick. And of course we're going to get to it. It's amazing that we can sit and talk about this, but they're talking about rolling back the golf ball. I don't know if you heard, I think that's going to be part of the conversation. Remember when that was the big story in golf, that they're going to roll back the golf ball uh, soon, perhaps soon we will get back to that. I'm not looking forward to anything Rex other than dinner. It's 7:45 local time. Uh, I've just been walking around hangry. The portion sizes in this part of the world are so small. And I, I can't even deny it. I'm a perpetual snacker. I eat all day. I don't eat huge portions all day, but I'm continually putting food in my mouth. From the time I wake up to the time I go to bed, I'm, I'm perpetually snacking. Uh, that's not the case. Can't do it this week. Uh, first of all, the options are not great. Uh, and second of all, we're limited uh, by 30 pounds. On our, on our RNA card. I know, I know I could bust out the corporate credit card, but I'm a, I'm a man of principle and I'm not going you don't to do even, it. Don't even bust out the corporate card. Just pay for it yourself. You're a grown no. man. You can afford to buy your own food. That's all I'm asking. And it's 30 some, pounds. We had some Totino's knockoff pizza yesterday that I found wholly unsatisfying. The fruit and fiber with the skimmed milk uh, didn't really light me up this morning. Uh, the Boost Bar, although delicious, uh, is not going to satisfy my hunger, that's not the tagline uh, for that particular energy bar. And so I'm looking forward to dinner, looking forward to see what you have cooked up, looking forward to some sort of like shepherd's pie that could be at least somewhat delicious. The options, grilling-wise, we're not, we're, not we're not doing a barbecue or grilling segment uh, in this week's podcast because, quite frankly, there's not any. But Alex Russell, Lil Ross, she's got a, a big green egg at her place. I know this is, this is going to kill you. We can't find charcoal. And we probably couldn't find a good cut of meat either to put on there. But it's got to nice be hard gray steaks. Yeah. Some nice gray steaks that we can cook. Well done. Extra gray for me. Just, just to make it extra gray. All right. We'll be back on Thursday, folks, with a recap from the first round of the marathon first round of the Open Championship. They play golf from sunup to sundown. That's how they do it over here. We wouldn't have it any other way. That'll be in the 15 to 20-minute uh, department if you're just uh, new to these podcasts. But we do appreciate you listening to this one. Make sure you check us out. Uh, on Golf Channel's live from the Open Championship. Rex and I will be together on Wednesday. Rex will be going solo each and every night uh, on live from. And, of course, go to GolfChannel.com for all of our news, notes, analysis, features, commentaries, podcasts, videos, and the like. It's all right there. One-stop shop, at least until we go to NBCSports.com slash golf. But that's a note for another podcast. All right, we'll talk to you guys on Thursday. Shout out, Connor. You get us. <laughs>